Hey, just want to take a quick break from this episode so I could tell you guys about how I just launched my new Patreon page. If you don't know about Patreon, it's a great way for people to support creators with a monthly subscription. Becoming a Patreon supporter can even come with a few perks, like early access to new episodes and getting special shoutouts on the podcast. I've recently started working part-time at my job so I can focus more time and energy on the podcast and YouTube channel. So any support would be massively appreciated, and it helps me towards my hope of making this my full-time job someday. So if you want to help support me in that, please head over to patreon.com slash hooptheory. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hooptheory. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. the Sabin Lee episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 38. My name is Logan Wortman, and this is going to be a bit of a bonus episode since we are here in the finals, and my favorite team is uh, in their first ever NBA finals. wanted to try to get my thoughts out before game three, um, my thoughts on game two, that is, because, you know, last episode was me and Jacob's thoughts on game one, but I wasn't able to actually get it out until after game two had already happened. So, you know, that's just how things can get pretty outdated kind of quickly uh, right now. So yeah, just wanted to give you a little bit of a mini episode here since it is solo and I'm just trying to get my thoughts out right before the game tonight because I am recording this on Wednesday in the afternoon. But adjustments from Spo is the first thing I wanted to talk about with game two, you know, because the Nuggets, for those who don't know, I don't know why you would be watching this if you didn't know, the Nuggets uh, won game one. Pretty definitively, like for the first three quarters, the fourth quarter was bad, though. Um, You know, like we talked about in the last episode, it felt like, to me at least, that Eric Spolster and the Heat had this, the you know, bring out the zone against Jokic as kind of like a back pocket card to play uh, down the stretch of the game um, to throw the Nuggets off their rhythm. And, you know, hopefully the Heat can just get a lot of buckets to go, you know, get just kind of really attack that lead that the Nuggets had built up. Um, and that's exactly what they did. And I also think the main reason for the zone was to take the Nuggets out of the Jamal and Jokic two-man game, uh, the pick and roll that's just so deadly and so, like, you know, it's been the Nuggets offense down the stretch of every single game in this playoffs. And so, you know, they want to throw a look at them that makes it hard to, like, you can't run a pick and roll against the zone. It just doesn't work, um, obviously. So, yeah, the thing that I wanted to talk about from game one to game two, before I get into anything else, of the reasons why the Nuggets lost game two. The first things I want to touch on, because I th- I feel like they're the most important, are the adjustments that we did see from Eric Spolstra. Because like I said last episode, I uh, was, I you know, I was, I didn't want to count out Eric Spolstra to be able to come up with something else, you know, to throw at Jokic and throw at the Nuggets um, from the defensive standpoint. But I just trying to think about the options i was like i don't know really what else you would do but i guess i just underestimated the the all the different variations of the zone that they can go to because that is what they changed which actually i have that listed as my second thing to talk about with the adjustments so the first thing i want to talk about with the adjustments uh, before we get there is the lineups the change the changes that uh eric spolstra made to the heat starting lineup because in game one aaron gordon was feasting on the lack of size that the Heat had 
on the roster because obviously from the very beginning of the game it was like nobody can guard Bam or nobody can guard Jokic rather other than Bam. So every time in transition, Bam would be glued to Jokic and everybody else would just have to match up. Um, they didn't have they they seem to not have that same type of rule with like Bam is the only one that can guard Jokic with uh, Aaron Gordon. Like they didn't have Jimmy Butler is the only guy who can guard Aaron Gordon. They didn't have that rule set in stone at first because multiple times in transition, you'll see, like, if you watch game one again, you'll see uh, Aaron Gordon streaking down the floor and Jimmy Butler, like, pointing pointing somebody else onto him or, like, Jimmy Butler just going over and, and manning up with Jamal or some, you know, and just, like, not taking that assignment. And Aaron Gordon would just feast on that. He had, like, eight quick points in the first couple minutes of the game by just, you know, bully-balling inside on guys like Caleb Martin and Game Vincent and Max Struess. So uh, then they figured out, you know, we got to go just Jimmy Butler's the only guy who can guard who can guard Aaron Gordon. But then what that did was Jamal. Like, you, you can't have Butler on Jamal at all. Like, it, it just it makes it a lot harder for the flexibility of your defense just overall when, like, Bam has to guard Jokic and Jimmy has to guard Aaron Gordon. And, every, you know, that's... That's where those two guys have to be defensively, because those you know those are their two most talented defensive players, and they're also both very versatile. So they they can defend all the other positions. Like those guys are like their best options, the Heat's best option to defend anybody on the Nuggets, really. But they both because they're the only, there's a couple guys on the Nuggets that nobody else is capable of guarding on their team on the Heat's team. Then that that traps Bam and and Jimmy in this scenario where they have to stay on those guys you know you can't you can't utilize that versatility that they do have by having them guard other other players and also you just have you you don't have your best defenders on jamal or on you know michael porter jr maybe if if he's catches fire which he has not uh, spoiler alert in these two games so far but yeah just that kind of a situation so they uh what what they did end up going with was uh starting kevin love at the four uh, defending Aaron Gordon because, you know, I mean, Kevin Love isn't some defensive stalwart, but he is also, but he is a big body, you know, he's not going to be bullied by Aaron Gordon inside. So that was the thought there. And it's also not just to like the bigger thing I would say, it's, it's not just not letting Aaron Gordon bully. It's the bigger thing is now you have Butler on Jamal. And that was a big difference, especially early on in the game. That made a huge difference. Like that huge Nuggets run that uh, they went on at the start of the second, I think it was. Whenever Jokic came out, I think Jokic might have played the whole first quarter. So I think it was at the start of the second. And, you know, a lot of people were confused by that, you know, because usually the Nuggets are terrible in the non-Jokic minutes. The playoffs have been a lot better since we've shortened our rotation. So the non-Jokic minutes are mostly starters still, you know. But, you know, this time in this game, we actually the best minutes we had on, on the floor the whole game were that those few minutes there where Jokic was on the bench. But the reason why that is, is not because Jokic was on the bench. It was because Jimmy went to the bench and that's when Jamal was able to actually hit some shots and got into, you know, if you're familiar with Jamal's game at all, he's like a, a rhythm player, rhythm scorer. So like once he sees a few shots go down he'll go into like a flurry, a Murray flurry is what we Nuggets fans call it, where he's hitting a lot of shots. And also it's just kind of infectious for the, like the whole team uh, to see some more shots go in. You know, everybody kind of catches fire. The team goes on a run type of thing. And that's like 
And I feel like the reason why that started is because Jamal got some easy looks without that suffocating defense from Butler that he's had that he had on him the whole first quarter. So I feel like it was just some it just so happened to be like a stretch where guys were hitting shots and that was like sparked by, you know, Jimmy not being on on Jamal. It wasn't really anything to do with uh, Jokic not being in the game. Uh, if Jokic was in the game, it would have been an even better run. But yeah, so that was the first adjustment from Spo. Uh, the other one was the zone thing that I was talking about with how I thought, you know, what else could they do other than because they've already thrown the zone at them. thing I guess I didn't know really was how, how uh, much difference or I guess how many adjustments how many changes you can make to that that heat zone like I I called it in the first episode a funky zone which I've been calling it for a while because it is it's not like a traditional it's not it's not the same type of zone you'd see from any other team like you know some people early on were comparing it to like the Jim Beheim Syracuse zones two three but it doesn't have the same rules or conventions when you're watching it you know uh, how how the players read and react to the floor. It's really kind of a mix, and especially in this game too, uh, where it was it almost instead of a two three was like it was like disguised as a two three at first, and before that it's disguised as a man. Really, it's, it's like it's just a very interesting sort of defense. I think Eric Spolstra is by far the most interesting uh, defensive coach. Like watching his defensive game plans. Is like the the most in- interesting thing in the playoffs for basketball fans. I don't love going against it, but I do respect it for sure. But basically, it's what seemed like the rules to me, at least, with the zone that they pulled out. They did the same type of thing they did last game, where they don't didn't really show Jokic the zone very much. I think they did maybe a, a little bit earlier on in this game than they did in game one. But they, for the most part, they waited until crunch time down the stretch, where you know. Everybody knows what the Nuggets are going to do, which is going to that uh, Jokic and Murray two-man game. And right as soon as, you know, Eric Spolster just has, you know, a perfect timing on when to hit that button and change to the zone um, to make make the Nuggets try to find something else to do. And last time that was, it was, it's, it was like a play it by ear type of thing in the game one with Jokic just trying to figure it like, you know, want to put, you want to put Jokic in the middle floor, which obviously that's like the number one way everybody knows to, you want to try to, to beat a zone is put a playmaker distributor in the middle of it around the free throw line. Um, and have guys, you know, cut into it, like people in the dunker spot him and maybe he, he kind of presses like he, he needs to either draw attention from that defense there. So the defense has to kind of form to him, suffocate into him. Um, and that allows, you know, the back doors. Um, and if they don't do that, then Jokic can just score right there. Uh, so that type of thing. But what they changed about it is now instead of the 2-3, they're in a 1-3-1 one, one with, a, with a guard in the middle in that center of the 3. Um if that makes sense, like right around the free throw line, who fronts Jokic. So he doesn't allow Jokic, like, you know, a open front to to catch the ball. Um, so he's trying to deny the pass. And then also behind him, behind Jokic, there's Bam, who's kind of playing up on him, you know, showing attention to him um, in case he they try to throw, like overthrow him, you know, uh, throw the ball high so Jokic can catch it over the guard that's in front of him 
uh, Bam is right behind him, so he doesn't have a lot of room. There's not a lot of room for error on that pass. And uh, before that even, though, uh, before they get into that 1-3-1, they, they start off in man in the full court. Like, everybody picks up their man going full court, and that, de- that like, determines how they get into the zone because, like, it doesn't matter – at least for, this is all just based off of like what I picked up on watching it. What was uh, it doesn't seem to matter who is in what position on the defense, um, other than Bam is on the baseline usually, but I think there was some times where Jimmy was down there instead. It's just, it, like it depends on where the uh, the men, <laughs> the guys on the other team, guys on the Nuggets, where they were placed because the guys started off matched up with their guy. Um to stop the ball in transition is the reason why. But then once they get into the half court, then they just kind of pick up the zone from wherever they are currently, basically. But it starts off in a two, three, cause they have two guards high. And then, and then the, the guard opposite of the ball um, seems to be the one that, that drops back and fills in that center space of the floor right around the free throw line. And like, you know, they'll try to put Jokic, the Nuggets will try to put Jokic there a lot. And that guy, that guy's job there, the guard is to, is to front Jokic and not allow him to get, get a open pass. So yeah, they basically, they, it's kind of hard because it's a, it's a zone and we have the guy, we have the, the Nuggets have the best person in the league in the world, probably that you would want to have to combat a zone, you know, a, just a very big, uh, extremely elite playmaker. Um, they can just put in the middle of the floor, but they're like making it so hard <laughs> for him to just get the ball there. And the other thing that ang- like, it, I feel like it, it enables this to happen um, or the, you know, it makes it easier for them to do this is something that I, that's been bothering me the entire season, which is, the Nuggets don't really have a point guard. Like Jamal, he he's a good playmaker. Don't get me wrong, but he's not like a floor general. He, you know, he's not. He doesn't make like the textbook fundamental type of passes a lot. He's more of like a he can hit hit guys on, on the roll pretty well and uh, spray out to open shooters. And he, and he's he's a flashy passer too. Like he's good at at making passes that look really difficult. <laughs> So like I feel like he's he's more he's better of a flashy passer than he is like an actual functional passer. But it, like not trying to say he's not a good passer at all. But the thing that I don't think he's great at, but he also is the best person on our team at it because we don't have anybody that can do this. And this is a kind of a dying art. So don't don't get me wrong. It's not like the Nuggets are just uniquely like incapable of this. It's just the entire NBA. There's not many guys like this anymore. It, it's usually kind of like the traditional point guards. Like we had it. I don't feel like I've even said what it is yet, so I, I should probably do that. It's uh, the uh, like entry passes. So throwing the ball into Jokic in the post, that's like a unique type of pass that you need to be good at making. And Jamal is the best guy on our team at it, and I don't think he's very good. But like I said, there's not many guys in the league anymore that are good. The reason why I think that is, why, why it's kind of a dying art, there's not many guys in the league that are good at it, is because the post position in general like the post up as a play has been a dying art for a while up until very recently where all of a sudden Jokic and and Joel Embiid are two of the best players on the planet and that's what their game is I think what happened was with the three-point explosion you know everybody was just kind of looking for post guys that could shoot 
and you know spread the floor more so than guys with post moves and also it could have just that could have been coupled with just like a generation that was just so happened to be a little bit more lackluster in that department of you know prospects that are good post players the game became a lot more wing and perimeter oriented and these two anomalies in Jokic and Joel Embiid were able to come in the league and just thrive I think because of how gone that play style was for a for a little while that means that there's like not as good of a you know defensive personnel for for players like that either because you don't need them as much and so those guys were able to dominate and the league has started to adjust back you know but that takes some time and one of the things that I feel like just isn't there yet is is being able to get the ball to these guys in the post um especially when it's the playoffs and you're going against a team that is super active and super smart defensively. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing. And, but yeah, the, the one guy I think that the Nuggets did have that was good at this was Monte Morris because Monte Morris, he's like a floor general. He's like a point guard, point guard, you know? And I really wanted to get Monte back. Like I, th- I thought that trade was worth it uh, for sure. Getting KCP for Monte Morris. Well, KCP and Ishmith for, um, Will Barton and Monte Morris. And, um, you know, I think that trade was worth it. But the, the other thing is I feel like we could have got Monte Morris back this season. I guess I don't know that for sure, but I feel like you, we could have enticed somebody with some second round picks and bones Highland who we were going to trade anyways. And we did end up trading anyways for nothing. We traded him for two second round picks, I think, um, which is nuts, but I wanted, yeah, I wanted the nuggets to try to go get Monte Morris because I knew, especially without bones, we would be very lackluster in the backup guard department. And we would have to be using Bruce Brown as that full time, which we had already started to do kind of with bones leaving the rotation with him, you know, feuding with Michael Malone. But Bruce Brown, though, is he's not a point guard. He's just not. He's he's a he has some like nice skills that you might like consider point guard type skills. That's like nice to have, but he's not he's not equipped to be like a a uh, commander of the offense. You know, you know, doing the thing that I'm talking about. You know, but Monte Morris is good at that. I think guys, obviously, like Chris Paul, Ricky Rubio. Rajon Rondo are some guys, you know, that are still in the league that are good at this. Mike Conley, I think, is good at this. So, you know, there's guys out there, but the Nuggets don't have them. And so that is one of the reasons why it makes it easier for for the uh, Heat to run this sort of zone where they put a guard in front of Jokic and then have Bam kind of pinching up on, uh, like, behind him to make it as difficult as possible for the Nuggets to get him the ball there. Also, Jokic threw some pretty uncharacteristic turnovers. I think also because of the zone, the way the zone was messing them up, and like the fact of them beyond it, just like, it's like, oh, they just can't get the ball to him at all. Like the main thing is it takes them way, it takes the Nuggets way longer to get into what they want to get into because of like the mass confusion that that heat zone reeks because like it's, it's constantly changing. Like you think it's something else like three different times before it's already, you know, before it is what it will end up being. And even then it doesn't really stay as a one through. I'm very confused on like the, the rules of it, to be honest. Like what I explained seemed to be loosely like most times, most possessions seems like what happens, but there's a lot of possessions when I like, I was rewatching the fourth quarter today and I was like, 
I don't I don't get why what what why the defensive players here are doing what they're doing. Like that doesn't seem like that would be part of the zone, but I don't I don't really get it. I it seems to be I I heard uh, Ben Taylor from Thinking Basketball. I think he described it as like there is no rules. Like it's a theory I think that there is no rules to the Miami zone. Like it's like a the players are reading and reacting, essentially. Like it's kind of like a freestyle defense, which seems wild <laughs> and doesn't seem like would be able to work, uh, like the coordination of that. But maybe it does. I don't know. Maybe Eric Spolstra, uh, he gives telekinetic or, uh, you know, whatever that is. Is telekinesis the one where you can hear somebody's thoughts? Or is that where you can move things with your mind? I don't remember. But whatever it is, he gives them that capability. They could, they can just read each other's minds, know and, and communicate everything. I don't know. I don't know how they do it. But they do it. So uh, that was n- not not great. But that I think that was the other big uh, change was, you know, I wasn't expecting the zone to be able to keep working against the Nuggets because they're like, oh, Jokic, it's just like this weird, it's it's a 2-3, like in game one, it was like a 2-3, but it was just a little weird where with how like, oh, where when the ball would be on this side of the court, like the wing, uh, the guy who would, should be the low man on the opposite side was like high, you know, um, up on the wing and just things like that. Like it's against like normal 2-3 convention, um, but it still was 2-3 overall for the most part. But this is, this is something completely different. I don't understand it. Uh, and I don't get how they do. I, yeah. I don't get where this comes comes from, how you think something like this up and how I, maybe because, you know, I haven't been super locked on in on the heat. I don't know if this is something they've used before, but I've certainly never seen it before. That's for sure. So that part of it was interesting. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, really quick I try to get uh, the, through the rest of this fast because I've been rambling, but uh, Eric Spolstra, how he reacted to Ramona Shelburne saying uh, the you know make Jokic a score type thing, and he you know went off on her saying that that was ridiculous and that's something that the untrained eye would say. Number one, I don't think you know people were sharing that around social media like he was roasting her, like he was like telling her that she is a casual basically. That's what a lot of people were saying. I didn't pick on up on that. I I didn't feel like he was saying, acting like she said it. You know, like the way she said it was. You know, this might be oversimplifying things, but you know, people people say you know something like that. Like she didn't frame it like it was her opinion. You know, and I I didn't feel like he was saying it like it was her opinion because he said people, the the people who say that are you you know they have an untrained eye. You know, something like that. He wasn't really directing it at her, but people were acting like like he did. Number one, but number two, I don't know if I totally agree with him either, which I'm not, you know, you obviously, if, if you're somebody who doesn't know what to think and you, you're trying to weigh who, sh- who you should listen to between me and Eric Spolstra, definitely listen to Eric, Eric Spolstra. I'm not saying listen to me, but I'm just trying to, th- you know, I, I was trying to understand it, what he meant by that. Like I saw JJ Reddick posted a video who also is a, a smarter person than me with basketball. He posted a video that was, you know, the title of it was something around around the lines of like he agreed with Eric Spolstra, and I watched it because just because I was trying to figure out why, like what what, do you, what does he mean, and I came away from it agreeing with what JJ was saying, 
but it doesn't really mean but like to me he wasn't he didn't discount that like the make Jokic a score is a is like a key cog of the game plan because it is you know it might not be like from that it like it might be indirectly a part of the game plan but it is still within because the point of what jj reddick laid out at least of what they're doing for the most part is like you know there's a lot of attention being played on those other guys you're trying to limit everybody else on the team because if Jokic, you know if Jokic is getting everybody else involved and other people are catching fire that then you can't beat the nuggets and so that is that the same thing as saying make Jokic a score it kind of is because what are you saying when you when you say make Jokic a score you're meaning you want him you, you're going to make him score one-on-one you're not going to you're not going to show him extra attention because you want to key in and not allow the guys to get plays off of him, to get open three-point looks, to get cuts at the basket, to get all of that stuff that goes off of Jokic. You just want him to have no other choice other than to put the ball on the floor and back down Bam and try to post up, which he's very good at, but you know the Nuggets offense is going to be slightly less efficient doing that because the main reason why is because you'll only get two points on the on the plays that you make the shot on there's a big difference between a two-pointer and a three-pointer like Jokic doesn't shoot a lot of threes and also in this scenario like he's usually in the post so it's like the best the Nuggets can come away away with for the most part other than on like an and one um is a is a two-point play and the math of that just makes it easier to outscore them I'll score the Nuggets. So, yeah, that's what my take is on it, I guess, is that I don't think... I guess I get what he's saying as in, like, maybe saying the game plan is making Jokic a score is way too oversimplifying it because I, I would agree with that. There's definitely more things that went on. And, like, that that was another thing that J.J. Redick went off on was all of the different reasons why the Heat won the game beyond just that. And it's like, okay, yeah, but that wasn't really... Is that really part of the game plan? Like some of the things he was bringing up was just kind of like things that went right for the Heat. Wasn't really part of the game plan necessarily. Um, that's not what made the you know like making Jokic a score doesn't guarantee you to win the game. Like I I wouldn't I don't believe that for a second. It just I think it it helps you, and you but you still need th- other things to break right and you know. To find luck in other areas, which the Heat definitely did, which I'm about to get into. So yeah, that's that's my thing on the make Jokic a scorer thing. The next thing I want to talk about is the officiating, which is one of the things that was definitely going in the favor of the Miami Heat, despite what some insane, like messed up in the head people on the internet were saying, which I assume were all Miami Heat fans. I saw in some comment threads. Like it definitely, I feel like there's less of these people than there are the people. Like all of the people that I hear introduce themselves as neutral fans, they're not a fan of either team. All of those people were saying that the Nuggets were getting screwed with the officiating. But every Miami Heat fan that I saw in there was like, not even mentioning anything about the Nuggets, just saying how bad the the officiating is toward them. You know, because I understand a little bit more game one why they felt that way. I don't agree with them, but you know, in game one. The Heat only had two free throws in the entire game versus the Nuggets 20. And people are saying that's just evidence that the Nuggets were getting getting all the calls. But it was like the way the Nuggets were defending the Heat were, you know, Jokic was in a drop, and so Bam was shooting a lot of jump shots. 
So, you know, you, they're not going to get fouled there. Jimmy Butler was not really attacking the basket at all. So he's not getting fouled there. They just didn't, like, their their offensive attack wasn't, like, drawn, it wasn't doing anything to get them to the line. You know what I mean? So why should have they have gotten more, call, like, you know, I just don't think there were calls there to begin with. Not necessarily that it was a disparity in how the refs were calling it. But and in this game, there was just so many huge, crucial plays, cru- crucial calls, crucial moments that were just completely like miscalled. Like, I don't know how else to say it. It was, it, they were bad. It was, it was really bad. Um, and it's just mind boggling to me how somebody can even, even with the bias of like being a heat fan can leave that game thinking that it was even or like, especially that the nuggets were the ones benefiting from the calls. It's just nuts. But there's one play that I, in my mind, I saw and I was like, that because usually I'm pretty neutral with calls. Like I'm, I'm willing to see the call and think, yeah, we were lucky on that. Like that probably shouldn't have been a foul or whatever. Like there was one play in the first half. I want to say, I'm pretty sure it was in the first half where Jokic got fouled on a three point shot, but it wasn't a foul. Bam did not foul him, but they called a foul and sent him to the line shot for three free throws. That one was a give like a, a freebie for the nuggets for, for sure. I, I get that. But there were so many other ones that were the other way around, and it, it, there was just way too many of them. The main ones, there was, I, I can't remember at which, which point in the game this one was, but I think it was at least in the second half. Yeah, I think it was like at the end of the third quarter, I want to say. It could have been even fourth quarter, I don't remember. But Jimmy Butler stepped on the baseline, and like they showed the replay of it and every, everything. Like The commentators were like, yeah, that should definitely should have been out of bounds. But he stepped on the baseline and threw the ball out to an open three-point shooter. And who who hit that that three pointer? This is one thing I don't understand. I've seen multiple times. It happened to the Nuggets in the playoffs two years ago. I want to say where you know the in Secaucus where they have their officiating headquarters for the NBA. They will replay. They'll they'll review plays from there while the game is continuing to to happen to roll on, and they'll review plays there to check to see if somebody's foot was on a line. You know, shooting a three pointer. Or if their foot was out of bounds, so the so they completely erased the three pointer. Like I, we had one entering the fourth quarter. There was a shot a couple years ago in the playoffs. I think it was Austin Rivers hit a three in the corner at the end of the third quarter. And when we came into the fourth quarter, we had three less points than we had, you know, at the end of the third. And they explained it. The commentators were like, uh, "Yeah, they went back and looked. Austin Rivers had his heel on the bit on the sideline as he shot that three. You know, so they erased it. I've seen that happen plenty of times since. Um, but that was like the one of the playoffs that I can remember very vividly. And but for some reason, they can't do that for the the player that passed the ball to the to the person who shot the shot. I guess. I guess it doesn't extend to that player for some reason. And then the really big one that I think most people noticed was the Bam goaltending uh, Jamal's floater. And that one was like with two minute, two minutes left in the game, something like that. I want to say it was pretty late in the game, and I think the Nuggets were down by three at that point. I want to say also, I mean, it could have been tied. It's a very close game. I mean, the, the final score, the, the Heat won by three. So, but yeah, the he blocked the ball out of the air after it was at his apex. It was already going down, and usually, like if if the like I feel like maybe it might be hard to tell when you're just looking at the ball. But if, if you're ever in doubt as a ref and 
it's on a shot that's like that close to the hoop, it's almost always a goaltend. You know what I mean? Like he shot a floater and it's right next to the right next to the hoop. Like the way where he blocked it was so close to the hoop that there's no way it was not like there's no way it was on its way up still. There's no way. And if you know anything about physics, the ball is always either on its way up or on its way down. There's no in between. And the rule is is after it has reached its apex. So it never got I don't think it was getting higher than it was <laughs> when when he hit the ball. So that was bad. There's a couple other ones. This, uh, there was a foul on Christian Brown, which that leads me to a whole thing. I don't, I don't know if I should go off on, but I'll just say it really quickly. Christian Christian Brown, I feel like, has been misofficiated his entire rookie season now so far. He's he is one of the most unique defenders I've ever watched play. The way he, he especially in transition, like is backpedaling. Um, or sometimes like the one that, that this was on, he was running to stop a play in transition and he, at the perfect time, just jumps straight, like the most straight up contest you'll see in your life, especially from a guy who's running full speed. I don't get how he does it, but it is like the most perfectly executed, uh, like contest you'll ever see. And they always blow the whistle. I don't understand it. I don't get it. He he's running and he jumps straight up into the air and he's like he spins around and he's like he's still floating that way, you know, like a he so he's going the same direction that the the uh, offensive player is. So he's definitely not meeting the offensive player, you know what I mean? Like he's going that way. The offensive player is the one who is going into him and he and by the rule book, he is doing everything within his rights to do as a defender. It with keeping all of his his like his arms straight up in the air and he he established like he's there you know in front of him it's i don't get it i don't get how you can call it like he doesn't touch his arm he doesn't touch anything on him all that happens is jimmy butler is he makes contact with christian brown's chest which is completely vertical and in legal guarding position. I don't understand it. That ha- that's happened like almost every game Christian Brown has played this se- this season where I right away I'm like, "Oh my gosh, what a like I'm like, "Holy cow, how did he do that?" And then I blow the whistle. I'm like, "Why? <laughs> I don't get it." But that one of those happened um for old time's sake, I guess. And then there was a Jokic offensive foul uh in the fourth quarter pretty late where which was, yeah, Gabe Vincent, like, tripped him, and then he's falling and, like, puts his hands down to brace, like, so, like, he he puts his hand on Gabe Vincent, and they, they call it as, like, he's pushing him over, even though he was the one that was tripped. And then the other thing was I heard recently, I think I heard it today, actually, that John Goble, John Goble, one of the refs there, who called that particular foul and a few of these other ones that I mentioned, um, made a, a few of these other missed calls. He went to high school with Udonis Haslam from the Heat. So I don't know if that matters at all. I feel like you shouldn't allow that type of situation to happen in a finals game if you're the NBA, but who knows? Um, and then the other things that just killed the killed the Nuggets was some terrible miscommunications that were happening the entire game. Um, it was right after, you know, and uh, our last podcast episode, I 
gave MPJ his flowers for how improved he is defensively this year, uh, which is true. He has been. This game, he was awful. But the other thing is, so were a lot of other people. KCP was terrible this game. Like, he's very, very good. I would say he's one of the best defensive small wings in the NBA. But we all have our off games, I guess, because he was not good in game two. And neither of those guys were good offensively either. Bruce Brown and, and Christian Brown. Had a few of these moments. Christian Brown, like again, I, like I've said, is a great defensive player. But there's just so many miscommunications that I just am like, how how is this happening? Why? You guys have been playing with each other this entire year. I've never seen this many miscommunications defensively. And like one of them very early in the game was MPJ was defending Gabe Vincent, I want to say. And Max Struess was coming up to set a screen on MPJ. And and so KCP was guarding Struess at the time. But KCP, like, steps up over that screen. And he must, I'm guessing, he had to have said something. I don't, I don't get how he couldn't have at least tried to tell Michael Porter Jr. that he was switching. But he stepped up over that screen and he was switching on to Gabe Vincent and I'm I'm guessing he was telling he was trying to let MPJ know what he was doing so MPJ sh- could follow Struess who slipped the screen over to the corner um but both of them stayed with Gabe Vincent for some reason and Vincent threw the ball to wide open Max Struess in the corner and it hit it hit a wide open shot and that was a guy who really struggled in the game 1 and you're now you're giving him open looks to get back. And this guy's he's paid money in the NBA to be a three point shooter. That's the reason he's in the NBA. Um, it was just dumb, and that set him up for a good game. I'm pretty sure that was the first one he hit. I want to say, but he had four threes, made threes in the first quarter. He was four for seven in the first quarter, after going zero for ten in game one. Um, so that was, yeah, that was not good. But there was a few other plays like that that happened. Uh, Bruce Brown with K, uh, CB. These This was like two plays in a row. I don't know if they were right in a row, but they were pretty close together. Uh, but it was the same action on both of them where Duncan Robinson is coming off a screen over in the corner with um, somebody, Gabe Vincent, I want to say. Yeah, Gabe Vincent, I think it was. And um, so sometimes when he comes off that screen, he'll, he'll come up. I don't remember what that screen is called. There's a name for it. Um, anyways, but he when he comes off that screen, he a lot of times Duncan Robinson will run up to Bam, who's holding the ball. That's where the ball is, is up at the top of the key elbow area. Um, he'll run up to Bam to get the handoff to you know curl around him. But you know sometimes he he reads the defense to see like how how the defense is playing him. Sometimes when he comes around that first screen, he'll just curl to the and cut straight to the basket, and that's what he did. And Christian Brown was he was following him around that screen and i just think and jj reddick this is something that he said about this play when he he highlighted it which was when he was in the nba every team that he'd ever played for like all of them taught this rule that on those types of screens on those plays you switch that no matter what every time especially when like it's a three-point shooter that you're because like that's the guy that is usually in that kind of a play is a three-point shooter who's coming off that type of a screen so you you always switch that because you don't want one of them to get an open shot or an open cut. But yeah, so Bruce Brown did switch it. Christian Brown kept following Duncan Rob. He was on his back, but he kept following him. He didn't switch on to Gabe Vincent. And then Gabe, you know, got the ball obviously in the corner for a wide open shot. Christian Brown figured out figured it out and contested too late. And then the next one, I'm pr- 
it happened again i want to say this like i know it happened again but i'm trying to remember if it happened the same exact way if christian brown if somebody yeah no this is what it was bruce brown didn't switch it this time like the the correction that they made i don't know if the coaches did this or if the players just i don't know who decided this but because that miscommunication happened on the last one where they were on the wrong page this time they were on the right page but they chose the wrong option which was to instead of switch it have bruce brown stay on gabe vincent and then christian brown tries to continue he tries to chase duncan robinson around that curl off the screen and duncan robinson obviously is ahead of him coming off that screen and gets the ball and gets a layup like what the heck and then uh yeah mpj was bad i, I think i mentioned that which malone in his post game interview uh, like not surprisingly had a lot of things to say that were kind of indirectly uh directed indirectly directed i don't know if that's a correct sentence but um at mpj which you know he was just, he was like uh saying some things in subtext toward michael porter jr which he's been known to do. I don't get why he like. I, I don't like that. I I get that MPJ had a bad game, uh, offensively and defensively, but I don't get why he's always the one that M- Michael Malone rips into in the press. He's done that ever since he's he was a rookie. I don't know why. If it's because he just thinks that it it's like if it's a tactical thing or if I don't get it. But he. Because my worry is I would rather not destroy... Because like so far it's been good because it seems like MPJ has responded well to that type of thing. Like he's he's taken those lumps and you learned to like on like what to grow with it on, you know. Uh, he's used, in, used them to grow. But now, like I'm just worried that it's not always going to be like that. You know, if, if he'll t- at some point take too much... Like he'll, he might get to a point where he's like, dude, I've changed. So I've grown so much as a player. Like, and like, I know that I'm not the only one out here making mistakes. Like in this game, like the guys I just mentioned, all were making mistakes. And why, like, why am I always the one that, that you're talking about? You know, I just don't like that. I don't want that to be a thing. So that's my thoughts on that, I guess. But the other thing, so there's two, I have two more notes on here. Um, the second to last one is KCP again, bringing him up who I think might have been even more of a worthy person to, to uh, you know, rip into in the postgame. Um, not that I condone ripping into any individual players, but KCP would have been maybe a better candidate for that than MPJ. It would have been close at least. But KCP fouled through. I've never seen this before in my life, especially from a veteran, like one of the best defenders there are in the league. He, he fouled three three-point shooters, three different shooters who were shooting three-pointers. So they got three free throws. So he gave the Miami Heat nine free throws on those types of plays. One was in the second quarter, I believe, on Jimmy Butler. I think he made all three of those, I want to say. Um, and But yeah, the other two were in the in the fourth quarter. So that was six points that he gave them in the fourth quarter, oh, which was nuts. Um, oh yeah, and the thing... Sorry, I, I forgot to mention with the Bam goaltend a little while ago when I was talking about officiating. That play was a five-point swing because when Bam blocked it, when he goaltended that that ball uh, or that shot, when the Heat picked it up in transition, they got an open three-point shot and made that. So it's more than just like we didn't get the two points we should have got, but we also were put in a position that probably wouldn't have happened if we would have made the shot and had like time to get back on defense. It's just you know it's just like a five-point swing that just is aggravating. 
um, in like really late conditions of a very close game that shouldn't. It's like the everything was just going right for the Heat already. That it was like why why does the officiating also have to be on their side? I don't get it. Um, they need like that's why I still feel good about the Nuggets for the most part. I'm not saying there, there's no fear in my heart, but um, I feel good about the Nuggets for the most part because it took literally like everything going the Heat's way in that game for uh, them to win it by three. So unless they can do that again, which I know I've been hearing from all the fans of the fan bases that they've taken out previously this playoff run, that it's like, yeah, you'll you'll keep thinking that they're just being lucky every game and it'll just keep happening. So who knows? <laughs> we'll see. But me as like what I know about basketball, that shouldn't happen again. I would bet against that. Um, the Nuggets aren't great on the road, but my but Miami d- doesn't seem to really play better on the road versus at home, which is a good sign. Nuggets are just a better. T- I don't think there's a person in this in this world that would tell you the the Heat are a better team than the Nuggets. So we should be good. But yeah, the last thing I want to mention was uh, P- Jamal. Uh, so this whole playoff series or playoff run, really, the thing that I've seen the teams, the opposing teams, learn pick up on like oh this is what we should do to do to jamal is uh pressure him full court because jamal he's like our only reliable ball handler for the most part in in full court other and that's why we sometimes have Jokic even bring up the ball as a seven footer but jamal's like yeah he's our only real real ball handler and he's also the guy that is taking usually he takes more shots or at least as many shots as Jokic. you know he's working a lot on on uh, the offensive end and usually the other teams are trying to hunt him on the defensive end so he's doing a lot of work there too so he's just and he plays the most minutes on our team we play him more than anybody because we don't have a backup for him which is the other reason why i wish we had monte morris right now but so they pick him up full court to pressure to give put pressure on the ball at all times dennis schroeder is one of the best guys in the league at that that's who did it to him in the Lakers series uh Nikhil alexander walker did to him the in the wolf series the sun series cameron payne maybe no Landry shamit was doing it yeah, I think those are the guys that were guarding him most of the time anyways. But but in this series, yeah, it's Jimmy Butler, who's probably even better than Dennis. Well, I think Dennis Schroeder is better at like the just focusing all of his energy on that. But Dennis Schroeder's a lot, like, a lot smaller than Jimmy Butler. Um, Like Jimmy Butler's big enough or like he's he's quick enough, mobile enough to stay stride for stride with Jamal. Um, and he's also bigger than Jamal. So, yeah, not a great combination. But yeah, hopefully that isn't something that continues to go bad for the Nuggets too is uh, Jamal's like out of gas in the fourth quarters in these games so far. Um, but yeah, hopefully the Nuggets can pull this one out. I uh, went a little bit longer, a lot longer than I wanted to. But yeah, I'll try to get this one uploaded for you guys or for my sake at least. I don't know. Um, yeah, but check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash hoop theory. Uh, check out the buy me a coffee. Hoop Theory is the account on there. I think all of these links should be in the description of this episode if you want to look at that. Um, but yeah, check out all of the stuff on social media that we have been doing. Um, I've been uploading shorts on there. I've been uploading more than one a day mostly, um, but I, like, I'm like i kind of do- doing like a minimum of one a day now. Like I think I only uploaded one yesterday. Um, so yeah, it, like gist of what I'm saying is that there should be something new on all of those accounts on social media every day. So be looking out for that. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, stay happy, stay healthy, enjoy these playoffs, and I will talk to you guys in the next episode. Mm-hmm.